Well, good morning. Happy Sunday. Welcome back, everyone, to week number two of our sermon series, Promised Land. Uh, Before we jump in today, two really quick things. Um, Number one, there was something that I meant to say last Sunday. It was really important that I said it last Sunday, and I totally forgot to say it last Sunday, and I had to reap the consequences of not saying it. So before we start week two, I want to tell you something I should have said in week one. Uh, If you're here, you might remember I was talking about financial worries and fears that we have. I shared a little bit of my family's story with uh, wisdom teeth and car repairs and everything else. And in the midst of that, I had meant to say this just one little line that I totally blanked on in the moment. I meant to say, and I'm not telling you this so that you generous Christians can give me money. I forgot to say that, so guess what happened? <laughs> Someone like, gave me a, like a, a thick envelope, an incredibly generous gift, and I said, I'm really sorry, I just can't, you know, I can't tell a sermon and then like, get extra kickbacks and benefits from it. That would be uh, very questionable. <laughs> then, as I'm trying to give this envelope of money back to this incredibly generous man, I get a text from a woman from our church, and she says, hey, I have a car for you. I cannot, <laughs> I, cannot, I cannot be accepting cars. So just so you know, I said no to all the gifts from these incredibly generous people. So in case you left last week thinking, oh, that was a little bit on the fence, um, I should have said something that I didn't. So that's thing number one. Thing number two, it is time before sermon number two for a pop quiz. I gave you homework last week. Hands nice and high. How many of you did the homework? How many of you totally forgot about the homework? Yes, Okay. So I'm going to let you cheat this time. So there's a little card in your bulletin. Pull this out right now. Uh, The point of the sermon series is not just uh, five sermons about the promises of God. Uh, The goal is to get you to live in the promised land by putting uh, these passages from God's word deep into your heart, which means you memorizing them over the next month. So last week, you can see what we studied. Um, Say number one with me. You ready for it? God is here. There's the promise. And here's the passage. Repeat this with me. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. It's a promise from Hebrews 13 verse 5. So, I'm not going to let you cheat next week. I'll make sure to memorize promise number one and promise number two before you come back next Sunday. Um, sooner or later in my experience, almost every person has two big realizations about the Christian faith. If you're taking notes in your program, I'd love for you to write this down. The first realization that a lot of us have pretty early in our spiritual journey is this, that Christianity is so easy. When it comes to getting to heaven or being part of God's family or being saved or being in a right relationship where God is happy with you, most people, until they discover the real good news of Christianity, have no clue that it is so, so easy. That Jesus, when he went to the cross for us 2,000 years ago, didn't do like half the work and now you've got to do the other half. He didn't pick up 80% of your spiritual check and now you have to work hard to pay the other 20%. Jesus said on the cross, it's finished because he did everything out of his great love for you. I remember uh, years ago at my last church, there was this teenage girl, high school girl, um, who started coming to church. She came to our like new members Bible class and a lesson or two and she raises her hand with this look on her face and she says, uh, Pastor Mike, I'm confused. I used to think that it was almost impossible to get to heaven. You had to work and work and work and work to be good enough for God. But based on what you're teaching me, it feels almost impossible not to get into heaven. That confused her. Wait, Jesus did everything? I just believe in Jesus and I'm good for all eternity? And that is what I taught her. That is what 
Christianity teaches us. That's why it's such good news. There's a great passage in Ephesians chapter 2. Look at these epic words. The Apostle Paul wrote in the New Testament, It is by grace or undeserved love you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. It's almost saying the same thing six times in a row, how easy it is to be saved. It's this grace that God gives, this undeserved love, not because you and I are such good people. It's through faith, not through effort or being better than anyone else. It's not of yourselves, just in case you're wondering, salvation has nothing to do with you. Instead, it's this gift that God freely gives, not by you working so hard so that you can boast about it, but just by Jesus working so hard so that you can rejoice in it. True Christianity is shockingly easy. There's no balancing the scales. There's no fixing your own karma. There's no making it up to God. There's no 10 prayers you say or $100 that you give to fix what you did yesterday. It's Jesus, 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 period. So easy. But there's a second realization that lots of us have. I want you to write this one down too. That Christianity is also so Hard. It's not hard because you're earning your place in heaven. That's a gift in Jesus' name. What's so hard about Christianity is that as you're following Christ as a Christian, he asks you to love God more than you love anything else. He wants the posture of your heart to be, you know, I might think this and your friends might say this, And you and I might feel this or really want this. But at the end of the day, the primary question for Christians is, but what does God want? And to always love God more than anyone else's will is so difficult. You know, I would say the primary difficulty of Christianity is the level in which Jesus calls us to love our Father in heaven. Look what he says in Matthew chapter 22, Jesus speaking, He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. You can like your friends. You can feel a thousand different things. But at the end of the day, we're called to love God just a little bit more. To seek him first, to prioritize him. It's why Jesus taught us to pray, our Father in heaven, your will be done, uh, not my own. And I'm not sure if you're spiritual journey, but that for me is where Christianity gets really, really hard. Yeah, when you're in a situation where it it would be so easy to do this, but in the moment Jesus is calling you to love God even more, to trust God, to prioritize God, to do the will of God. For example, do you know anyone who's, let's say, in your family or in your neighborhood or at your school, or at your job, who's really difficult to love? Who most of your coworkers or classmates kind of try to avoid because they're notoriously difficult to love? If you're sitting next to that person right now in church, by the way, don't make eye contact or it's going to get really, <laughs> get really awkward. Um, you know, that's, that's kind of life, right? This person's awkward. They don't have good social skills. They can't communicate. We, we avoid them. People poke fun at them. It's that kid from class. It's that woman at work. But you know what Jesus calls you to do? To love even that person. To not avoid that person at church. To show uncommon patience and compassion and love and grace towards that person. That is super hard. 
Or do you have a strained relationship with someone you know? Maybe it's your mom. Uh, maybe it's your ex. Maybe you're in a, a relationship like that right now. Um, often when there's a strained relationship, you know, this person sinned against you and you probably sinned back against them and there, there's some distance between you. It's really natural to think, well, that person should apologize to me and, and that person should take the first step. But you know what Jesus taught us to do? To humble ourselves so often that we would own whatever part we had and just do everything we can to try to reconcile with another human being. Jesus once famously said in Matthew 5, if you're sitting in church, like bringing your gifts to God and your praise, and you remember that someone else has beef with you, leave church, Jesus taught. You can look this up. Go reconcile with that person. He, he cares so much about love and reconciliation. He calls us to like the standard of humility that no one else is teaching, which is so hard. Or imagine you're a really good high school athlete. Like, the coaches are super impressed. Your future's bright. You know, varsity is a given. You might have a chance uh, to play in college, maybe even to get a scholarship. And Sherman's pushing you towards this, like, high level of athletic excellence that is super time-intensive. You know, it's traveling the country, playing in tournaments, sitting in gyms, uh, on the field. And if you do that, well, it's going to be really hard to do something like this. You're going to have to squeeze in a little bit of worship online as you're always on the road. To actually be physically with God's people, around God's word, sometimes it's impossible to do both. So which one do you love more in that moment? Or say you're like one of the many people in our church who live with same-sex attraction in their heart. Or feel kind of trapped in the wrong body when... You know, sexuality is a big question for you and those desires are real and they don't go away just because you pray. What do you do? Do you follow your heart? Or do you live your whole life trying to keep this standard in the Bible that feels almost impossible? You could pick almost any commandment in the Bible. In the end, Jesus calls us to love God so much, it, it feels like so much. Sometimes it feels like too much. It's the reason I think a lot of people quit church. It's why they you know, might be raised as Christians, but in their college years or their 20s, they, they just say, no, that's not the kind of lifestyle I want to live. That's too hard. That cross is too heavy. Denying this part of me just doesn't seem like the best way to live. That kind of reminds me about 25 years ago when my pastor used to be my sensei. So I grew up at a church in Green Bay, Wisconsin. And when I was in late middle school, um, the new pastor who came to our church was actually a national champion of karate. So he starts in the church basement, a bunch of karate lessons. I sign up. I'm one of the older kids, which meant on a lot of Saturday mornings, I had to physically fight my pastor. I don't a complicated church experience growing up. Like, he'd be like kicking me in the stomach on Saturdays and preaching me the gospel on Sundays. So it was interesting how that worked. But whenever I would test for a new karate belt, there was always this one thing my pastor slash sensei did. He would make us get into like this really deep stance. We have to put our arms straight out, like parallel to the ground. And we'd have to stand like this and not move. And the higher up you got in the rankings, the longer you, you had to stand until your arms were shaking when you just felt so weak like you couldn't do it. And then do you know what my pastor would do? He'd walk up right here while my arms are trembling, check his watch, 
and take off his shoe and set it in my trembling hand. He was a Christian, by the way. He did love me really deeply. Right? And just when I thought, like, I can't do this, then the weight gets heavier. And it just felt impossible to do sometimes. For a lot of people, following Jesus is that kind of experience. Right? You're trying to be a good person. You're trying to be forgiving. You're trying to be trusting. You're trying to follow this biblical path. But then sometimes there's some command in here. There's something God says where it feels like your heavenly father like drops this incredible weight and you think, I just can't carry this. I can't live this biblical lifestyle that I'm supposed to be living. This is too hard. I just need so much help. Now, I want to share that with you today because there's a promise in the book of Hebrews that can help you through moments just like that. 2,000 years ago, there was this group of Christians who were like trembling in weakness and about to give up their Christian faith. It seems from the context that they had started to follow Jesus and it was super fun and joyful and exciting and they're singing praises. But then, after time, it, it got really hard. Uh, persecution was picking up. Their property was being confiscated. They were losing financially, socially, relationally. And it was so hard that some of them thought, I, I, don't, I don't know if I want to keep doing this. And thought about renouncing their Christian faith, closing their Bibles, leaving their churches, and just living an easier lifestyle than the one that Jesus had laid out for them to live. But before they left, um, God inspired the author of the book of Hebrews, we don't know exactly who it was, to write this case. It's a book that's pretty short, 13 chapters long, and essentially it's this overwhelming case to stick with Jesus even when Jesus is hard. Even when it feels like you can't. Like, here's the reason why you should keep holding on firmly to this Christian faith that's been given to you. So today, if, if you feel like Christianity is too much, if you know someone who's just on the fence of just walking away from church and the Bible forever, I want you to notice the amazing promise we find in Hebrews chapter 4. So if you have a Bible with you, we're going to jump in at verse 14 where we read these words. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. So there's the big encouragement. Let's, let's hold on to this firmly. Let's not give up on the faith. And notice that little word, the. It's actually super easy to be a person of faith as long as you get to define what that faith is. It's super tempting to be spiritual but not religious because normally that means you get to decide in the end what's right, what's wrong, what you do, what you can't. What's much more difficult is to hold on to the faith. Right? The objective outside of you, you don't get to decide what it is. And the author to the Hebrews is saying, let's hold firmly. Let's not give up for one second to the faith that we've professed as Christian people. And did you catch at the start of the verse, verse 14, he tells us why. Since we have a great high priest, since we have Jesus, the Son of God. Now, this was a huge phrase for these people because all the people in the letter to the Hebrews, the recipients of this letter, grew up Jewish. And if you grew up Jewish, you knew all about the importance of having a high priest. Any of you read the Old Testament before you know how this worked? 
There are all these Jewish people, the people of Israel, who messed up in all the ways that you and I mess up. They sinned sometimes in their head, sometimes in their hearts, sometimes with their lips, sometimes with their hands, which was a problem because you have a God who is holy and perfect and pure, a God who hates sin. And so there's the system in the Old Testament where the high priest, just one guy, one day a year, it was called the Day of Atonement or Yom Kippur, he would bring a very special sacrifice into the presence of God, an innocent lamb who hadn't done anything wrong. Its blood would be shed and for some mysterious reason, God said, I will allow this innocent sacrifice to take your place to deal with You can have a good relationship with me. So what is the author to the Hebrews doing? He's saying Jesus is like that for you. Right? You struggle with A, B, or C. You know you should do one, two, or three. You mess it up. You break God's laws. You sin against him. But instead of God being mad or punishing you for your sin, Jesus stepped up as your high priest. He offered the sacrifice to take away your sin so that you and I could be good with God. Except, he's a really cool Bible fact, this is the first time in the entire Bible, and look at the book of Hebrews is almost all the way to the end, this is the first time in all of these pages that a high priest is called great. In these pages, lots of priests, a few high priests, but never a great high priest. But then Jesus comes along. And the author says, um, Jesus is like the high priest above the highest priest. Because he doesn't have to come back year after year after year, you know, leading some bull or goat or lamb to be slaughtered. No, what Jesus did was step forward at one moment to offer one sacrifice that would cover over the world's sins. Right, so in case you're new, the reason we have this giant cross here in our church is because we believe Jesus on a single Friday offered a sacrifice so great and so powerful that everything wrong you've ever done was taken care of right there. And if Jesus would do that to make you and God good, if he would shout out on that cross, it's finished, so that Christianity could be the easiest path to heaven, believe in Jesus, you will be saved. The author of the Hebrews is saying, since we have that, Jesus, the greatest high priest of all, let us hold firmly to this faith that we profess. Now, let me say this clearly since it's so easy to forget. When you mess up at home, like when the situation gets the best of you and you worry or you snap or you're impatient with one of your kids, uh, when you have too much to drink or click on the link that Jesus doesn't want you to, the, the reason you don't have to wake up in the morning and punish yourself for that sin is because Jesus was already punished. The reason you don't have to like wake up and mope around with guilt and shame or say 10 prayers or give 20 bucks is because Jesus already did the work. The reason you don't have to like wander around and just hope that you're good enough to make it to heaven, but you can know despite your weaknesses and your failures, yeah, I, I'm good with God. He likes me. I'm his child and he's my heavenly father. The reason you can believe that despite all the struggles you have, just like I do, is because of this great line, we have a great high priest. We have a Jesus who didn't pick up half the check. He paid the entire bill. Since we have that, since we have him, the author says, let us hold firmly to this faith that we profess.
But there's more. Now look at verse 15. Just in case you didn't know how great Jesus was, verse 15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. If Jesus would just be the guy who took care of our sin, he'd be worthy of worshiping for the rest of eternity. But apparently that's not all that Jesus is. It says here, he's also the high priest who empathizes with our weaknesses. Here's something I've learned. And uh, you husbands and wives in the room can tell me if I'm right about this. It is very, very hard in this life to meet someone who has the power to fix a problem but also the empathy to relate to a person before they try to fix it. You know what I'm saying? I mean, some of you, if you have the resources to fix it, your brain goes into like engineering solving mode. You see this classically between husbands and wives where she's having a bad day and he's just like, well, here's what we're going to do. Get out your notebook, honey. I'm going to fix this, right? I mean, he desires to use his resources to help, but often what a person needs before we get to that point is just empathy, understanding, compassion, Love. And this verse is epic because it says, even though Jesus could snap his fingers and fix it, what he also does for you is empathizes with your weakness. Like when you're going through it and you're tempted, when you picture Jesus at the right hand of God, do you just see him doing this a lot? Like, yeah, that that is so hard. I'm so sorry you're going through that. Like, you're living in a culture where it feels like people aren't doing the right thing. Jesus is like, yeah, I get that. You're surrounded by friends who are making really bad decisions and they're just so frustrating to you. Jesus is like, yes, I definitely get that. You're misunderstood by your family. They don't support your faith and your relationship with God. Jesus gets that. Have you been, like, hurt by someone, sinned against, betrayed by someone you thought you could trust? Jesus is like, yep. Are you a victim of abuse, a survivor of it, Jesus? Yep. Jesus, before he pushes like his supernatural fix-it button, he shows up with the biggest, most compassionate heart. He like, puts an arm around struggling people. We don't have this high priest who's so distant that he's unable to empathize with our weakness. We have one who's been tempted in every way, just as we are, and don't miss this phrase, yet he did not sin. It's shocking. Some people don't know this, that Jesus lived for 33 years on this earth and he messed up a total of zero times. When he was holier than his mom and dad, when his stepdad Joseph told him to do his chores, Jesus never snapped back, listen, Joe, you're not my real dad <laughs> and I'm better than you. <laughs> you would have been right. No, he, was, he never sinned. He might have been tempted to, but he never gave in to that. And when people were like nitpicking his words, starting rumors about him, slant, making up things he didn't say, Jesus never like let the caps lock on and just went off because they had it coming. He was tempted, but he never sinned. When he was overwhelmed and God's plan for him was difficult, he never just did his own thing or lived his own truth. He said, Father, your will be done. The reason, in fact, that the sacrifice of Jesus worked is because Jesus was not a sinful human like me and you. He was the spotless lamb of God 
And his blood was so holy and pure that when he shed it, because he was sinless, it was enough. And so the case is building. Like, wait, wait, why would you ever walk away from Jesus if he is the holiest, most empathetic, compassionate, selfless, loving, sacrificial human who has ever walked this earth? Isn't it better, even when it's hard, to stick with him? And just in case that wasn't enough, (laughs) there's just one last verse I want to share with you today. Look at verse 16. Here's the one I'm going to ask you to memorize as homework. The author says, Let us then, since we have this Jesus, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Do you need help? Do you need God to have mercy on you and listen to your cry? Do you need his grace and forgiveness as you struggle to do the right thing because Christianity is hard? I love this line. Let us then approach God's throne with confidence. Just a shockingly beautiful phrase, isn't it? Can you imagine approaching the throne of a king with confidence? I mean, when I roll up in my own garage, I come with confidence because it's my garage. If I'm coming to the office here at work, I stroll in without fear because it's my office. But if I stepped into your home, even more, if I tried to visit the White House, if I was standing outside of Taylor Swift's tour bus, (laughs) there are some places where we just know, I don't know if they're going to let me in, but I don't belong here, so we get super nervous. So how can this passage say, that you and I, despite all of our failures, could approach the throne of God. The King of kings, Lord of lords, like angels are covering their faces. He's so holy. How could we approach a God like that with confidence in our hearts? I'll tell you how. Many years ago, there was this two-year-old girl who approached me, the, the pastor, and the altar of our church right in the middle of a church service. Can you imagine it? Little two-year-old strolling right up here on stage. It was Easter Sunday. The place was packed. Every chair was filled. We had extra chairs set up in the aisles. And this was at the last church I pastored. It was a bit more formal and traditional. So I used to wear one of those big white robes. Can you picture me in a robe? And this is why many kids at our church, the little ones, one, two, and three-year-old, thought that I was Jesus. (laughs) Yes. Kids would be totally freaked out about me because, you know, when you read a children's Bible, Jesus is the guy in the big white robe. So they thought that was me. And so kids would kind of hide behind their mom's legs. But this one two-year-old, one Easter Sunday, did not. She was pretty smart. She actually waited until her little sister was kind of squawking and crying. Mom turned her attention to the right. Little two-year-old, boom, she saw her chance and she ran. She gets out the aisle. It's so packed. Mom can't catch her. She's weaving in between the chairs. And yeah, I'm in the middle of church. And here's this little two-year-old comes strutting up right to the pastor, right in front of the altar with boldness and confidence. Do you know why she did it? She was my daughter. <laughs> so it's been a traumatic Easter Sunday for Kim. So you moms can only appreciate what happened in that moment. She came up because I was not just the pastor. I was not just the church leader. I was the father who loved her. And so I might have had the call or the office or the authority in the church, but I was so much more than that to her. I was the father that had proven year after year that I cared about her. And this passage is so profound to me. It's saying, 
that you and I can approach God's throne with confidence. Why? Because we're not just servants of the king. We're not just followers of the Lord. We are sons and daughters of a perfect Father in heaven. Remember how Jesus taught us to pray? Our Father. And if God is love, and he loves his kids a billion times more than I love my own, if his arms are wide open because all of our sin has been taken to the cross, why would we not come before his throne of power with confidence? I love this scripture. It's saying if you need help, God wants to help. He's a good dad. He doesn't just have the power to fix your problems. He has the empathy and compassion. He sees you as sinless because of what Jesus did. You don't have to like tremble and keep your distance. You can run into his perfect arms because he will help. So if you're taking notes, I might summarize this section of scripture like this. Christianity is hard. I won't promise you otherwise. But Christ promises to help. You need someone to feel for you. Jesus will help. You need someone to forgive you. Jesus will help. You need access to the throne of the one who runs the universe for the good of his church. Jesus will help. You need someone to take your place who hasn't sinned. Jesus will help. (laughs) You need someone to die for you. Someone who lived for you. Jesus will help with all of it. He is the one who gives us strength. And that's why I'm sincerely hoping that you take this homework home. That you set this little card in front of your mirror as you're getting ready in the morning, stick it in the cup holder of your car, stick it as a bookmark in the book you read alongside your bed. Because I have a hunch, a lot of you feel right now in this moment just a a little bit more hope, a little bit more spiritual wind in your sails. I've just preached to you the promise of God, but you don't have to wait till next Sunday to get it. Embed this promise in your heart and you will escape the panic and the fear and the hopelessness and you'll find that everything that Jesus once is yours by his name. Before I say amen, let's go back to the dojo. Some of you think that this is what Christianity is. Hold on. Don't mess up. Don't live for yourself. No, hold. But that's not true. You know what Christianity is? Same Bible, same Christian lifestyle, but an incredible God to help you. A cross that will forgive you. A strength that is more than enough. And and so if you're thinking about giving up, about not repenting, about not believing, about giving up on church and the Bible because there is some easier path, I would remind you that Jesus is infinitely better. Christianity can be hard, but your Savior Jesus Christ has promised to help. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, thank you for everything you did. And some people in this world tell us that you were just a good guy who taught us to love God a little bit more. Uh, But that wouldn't work for us. (laughs) We need you to be a sinless Savior who took our place, who did everything that we could be good with God. And I'm so grateful that you are. Um, Father, I'm not naive. Um, Every single day, Uh, as people are dealing with uh, bitterness, as they're trying to find their place at school or at work, as they desire to just live a better life, 
Um, they're so tempted to ignore something you clearly said in your word. Um, it's so tempting to redefine what this faith really is. And so I pray that you would strengthen us, that you would help us, that you would open our eyes to actually believe that Jesus is the greatest and that there's nothing better that this world could offer us. I thank you so much, Jesus, that every moment of every minute, of every hour, of every year that you lived, you thought of your Father and you loved him the most. I'm so grateful that you did that, not just as our example, but as our substitute, that we could be saved and walk out of here with your grace, your mercy, and the peace that goes beyond understanding. So give us strength. I mean, we follow you faithfully all the days of our life until we see your face and realize that you were always worthy of everything we had to give. I pray this all, Jesus, in your glorious name. And all God's people said, Amen.